We're happy to have this episode sponsored by Real Mushrooms. You probably already know about some of the great benefits of adding mushrooms to your diet, like better sleep, greater mental clarity, and a stronger immune system, but not all mushroom products are equal. Real Mushrooms is the real deal. Many mushroom companies harvest the mushroom and the grain it's growing on. Real Mushrooms products contain no grains or starch fillers. They're organic, cultivated naturally, and third-party verified for beta-glucans, the compound that makes them so valuable as a supplement. They even have a science and medical team of doctors who ensure that Real Mushrooms meets the highest standards. What I personally love is how informative their website is. Have questions about what mushroom is right for you? They have a robust blog with articles ranging from women's health to what mushrooms are most beneficial to your pet. Want to boost your immune system? Have better sleep and feel more calm? Grab the link in the show notes and get 25% off of your first order. Curiously enough, acupuncture is not just sticking needles into people. It's part of a coherent and observation-based medicine that experienced practitioners of the art have handed down over the centuries. I'm Michael Max, your host and guide of Everyday Acupuncture. Listen in as we explore how you can apply the principles of this ancient medicine in your everyday life. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the show. My guest today is sugar. Yep, that's right. Today's episode is about sugar. You've got just me, Michael Max, and I'm going to share with you in this monologue podcast some of the issues that I've seen in clinic that have their roots in the extensive consumption of sugar, along with some curious things I've noticed about the change process over the years that I've worked as an acupuncturist. And I'm going to give you an outline of how you can transform your relationship with sugar. My goal here is to give you some tools and options if you found that sugar has been a problem for you. Now, I want to give you a heads up. There could be some ranting in this podcast. I'm going to tell you up front that I've got some biases about sugar. I've spent way too many years helping people through various problems that have been exacerbated by their addiction to sugar. And so... If you're looking for a calm, level-headed discussion, you're probably not going to find it here. That said, I'm going to do my level best to back up my perspective with science and clinical observations. I just want you to know that I've got a point of view in this particular podcast. Now, why do I have an attitude about sugar? I'd say it stems from the mischief that I've seen a cause in my 20 years as a student of Chinese medicine. The stuff is addictive as cocaine. It's totally legal. And it's not just socially acceptable, but you'll be ostracized if you take a stand against it. Sugar messes with your metabolism. It often gets conflated with love. We use it to bribe ourselves and our children, and we use it to sedate our uncomfortable feelings. Hey, why take a Xanax when you can sedate yourself into a carbohydrate haze with sugar and fast carbs? I know it sounds a bit inflammatory to compare sugar to a drug, but I've seen countless patients that actually use it as such. You might too. You know, there's this interesting study that I read recently as well, where they took rats and they addicted them to cocaine. I'm not saying that rats and people are the same thing. But uh, anyway, they, they took rats, they addicted them to cocaine, and then they gave the rats 
the choice between cocaine and sugar. Guess what they went for? Yep. I've got a big problem with this stuff, and I have a problem on how sugar has managed to find its way into all kinds of food products, and how we've come to depend on the dependably undependable cycles of energy and crash that come as a result of the blood sugar spikes associated with this stuff. Many of us are completely addicted and don't even know it. Most of us have had our taste buds so altered and retuned to sugar's blinding sweetness that we can no longer taste the real flavors of foods. I mean, I remember a little while back uh, eating some red peppers, uh, sweet red peppers, and I was thinking to myself, man, these things are like candy. And then I remembered a few years ago that I could eat really the same thing, sweet red peppers, and they were sort of bland and, and sort of cardboardish. I don't think the peppers have changed, but it's my perception of them that has shifted. You know, there's just a lot that I found out in my own experience painfully gained about sugar, and, and that's what I want to share with you here. One of the things I found is that if you can get enough time away from sugar, your metabolism can fundamentally shift. You'll lose your taste for it. You notice that it not only doesn't make you feel good, it makes you feel sick. And once you're free of its grasp, you'll see the collateral damage it causes in others all around you. Like Neo, you wake up to the reality of the matrix. Sometimes you think it will be easier to stay asleep, but trust me, it's better to wake up to this stuff. Let's start with a story. Let's start with mine. I was a skinny kid, and even when I started to gain some weight in later years, I was always lean in the limbs, so I looked like a thin person. This means that I didn't show the metabolic imbalances that accumulated mostly around my waist, especially if I wore the right clothes. I lived for years on cycles of sugar high and glycemic crash, which would leave me all shaky and sweaty and kind of hangry. You may have experienced this kind of thing where you just absolutely have to eat and you have to eat right now. That comes from unstable sugar cycles. At one point, I had the metabolism to handle the sugar, but in my 30s, that began to disappear. I started to put on weight. In retrospect, I realized that my high-carbohydrate diet helped to sedate a general anxiety that I really didn't want to admit existed. As a healthcare practitioner, I thought I should be able to get rid of the belly fat that had been dogging me. And I utterly failed at it with the usual methods of less fat and less calories. All of that began to change after I read a book called Good Calorie, Good Calorie by a guy named Gary Taubes. More about him later. Let me tell you about Good Calorie, Bad Calorie. It's this big, it's a tome. It's this big, thick book. And Gary is, he's not a medical guy. He's actually an investigative journalist. And so he went after looking at metabolic issues from the point of view of an investigative journalist. In this book, Good Calories, Bad Calories, he goes back hundreds of years looking at research, not just in the United States, but, but from Europe, and tracing how the increase in sugar was creating an increase in various metabolic disorders, especially diabetes, as uh, time went on. It's a book that goes heavy on science. So if you like that kind of thing, then I would encourage you to read it. If you're not so crazy about the science and you're more interested in getting kind of the, um, 
the bullet points, so to speak, the stuff you need to know and why you need to know it. He's got a book for the general public called Why We Get Fat and What to Do About It. And uh, it's, it's really helpful as well. One of the things about good calorie, bad calorie is it woke me up to the truth that weight, weight loss, weight gain, and metabolism in general, it's not about calorie in, calorie out, which is really what most of us have been taught to believe. It gets into about how different calories are metabolized differently. And those different metabolic processes have different effects on the blood sugar and on the hormonal processes that have a lot to do with digestion and, and metabolism. Something else I found, while many books and the internet tout results within a week or a month, I've discovered, both in my experience and also from working with patients, that it can take months or maybe even years to regain a healthy metabolism. It took me years to screw up my own metabolism that used to be quite robust and quite tolerant of carbohydrates, and it's also taken me years to turn it back around. This is not bad news unless you think that quick fixes are actually fixes. But more about the process of change a little bit later. I want to talk about some of the problems that I've noticed have a connection with sugar. First one, obviously, is diabetes. And the second one, obviously, is weight gain and obesity. I don't think I need to go into the details here. You listen to the evening news at least two nights out of seven, they're going to be talking about these issues. Other problems, and this is what I've seen in my clinical experience. This doesn't come from uh, books or research, although there's plenty of books and research that'll back me up. This is what I've seen in my clinical practice. Issues identified with sugar, joint pain, issues of inflammation. I've seen sugar be a real key element in mood swings and behavioral changes, and especially in kids. I'll tell you, truth be told, I'm really glad that when I was a kid, they weren't handing out the medication the way they are now because I'm sure I would have been one of those kids that was given Ritalin. Sugar is a big problem with maintaining consistent energy and people who have problems with clarity, focus, brain fog, these kinds of things. Often you get rid of the sugar and the brain clears up. Food cravings and sugar, they go hand in hand. And then there's insulin resistance and the various metabolic and hormonal problems that stem from diets that are high in glucose. High levels of triglycerides and LDL cholesterol, that's right. A lot of times if you've got an issue with your cholesterol, it's not the fat that you really need to focus on. It's the sugars. And of course, all kinds of digestive problems can be related to sugar. Suppression of the immune system is a big thing that you see with sugar, and that can manifest in anything from frequent colds to skin issues, allergies, other kinds of sensitivities, or just an overall feeling of malaise. And by the way, it probably goes without saying, tooth decay, a big factor in sugar. Uh, there's a really interesting resource that I was turned on to a while ago. It's the Weston A. Price Foundation. Weston uh, Price, Dr. Price, he was a dentist, and he uh, got a, a grant, I can't remember from where, some association, and he traveled all over the world. This was back around the 20s, 20s and 30s. He traveled all over the world and checked out the teeth of various cultures. And what he found was the cultures that ate a lot of processed grains and sugar, they had the tooth decay 
But the more, and I'll use this in air quotes, primitive cultures, or even cultures that ate high-fat diets, their teeth were really in excellent shape. So, you know, it's interesting. I remember as a kid growing up hearing about, oh yeah, sugar will rot your teeth. But it seemed like we never really thought that much about it. Or we just figured, hey, you go to the dentist and you get it fixed. It's actually no big deal. I think it's a big deal. All right. Uh, let's switch the focus here a little bit. I want to talk a little Chinese medicine and, and give you just give you an acupuncturist point of view on some of this and where sugar fits into some of the bigger picture. So uh, there's this thing in, the, in Chinese medicine, we call it the five elements, which is actually not a great translation of the term wuxing, which would be more like five movements. But basically, these five movements or these five elements is a way of describing various aspects of the body and how they work together. It's, it's not a Western scientific view, but I would say it's an old Asian scientific point of view. And it, it's interesting because it looks at both what aspects of the body control other aspects and what, problem, uh, what aspects of the body uh, promote other metabolic functions. It's a really interesting model that you know, in some ways it's poetic. You can look at it and go, oh yeah, it's kind of interesting. It talks about nature, but what's that got to do with the body? And yet, if you really go into this uh, system of five elements, there's an incredible beauty to how the body works and how, more importantly, how the body self-regulates. I'm not going to go into a big spiel on this other than to say the five elements, let me say them for you here real quickly. There's earth, fire, water, wood, and metal. Um, it's the earth element, which is primarily expressed through our digestive system. Uh, and interestingly enough, the earth element is actually nourished and tonified by the sweet taste. So when people are really depleted, then a bit of sweet is really, really helpful. And even from a Western medicine perspective, if someone's really weak, uh, maybe they've just come out of surgery or they've been extremely ill, you need to give them some very basic nourishment, you're going to give them an IV glucose drip, right? You're just going to mainline some sugar. And it can, be, it can be helpful when that earth element is really weak. But it's a big problem to confuse more with being better. And in fact... Chinese medicine has a lot to say about how too much of something will actually bring about the opposite effect. And this is really true with sugar. A little bit at the right time in someone who's depleted can be life-saving. But too much in someone who's already well-nourished, that will actually sow the seeds of disease. And again, all we have to look at is the increasing rates of illnesses like diabetes and uh, obesity, and we can see that too much of a good thing really is not a good thing whatsoever. In Chinese medicine, we say that an excess in the earth element leads to a thing that we call dampness, which is kind of a code word for saying fat accumulation, water retention, high blood lipids, and various metabolic and hormonal disruptions. One of the interesting things to me about when you begin to get off sugar is you start dumping lots of water out of your system. The kidneys just dump fluids. And in the process of dumping fluids, they 
uh, take a lot of salt out of the system. It's interesting because often when people start getting off of sugars and fast carbs and, and start with a low carbohydrate diet, they feel really crabby and fluish and just kind of generally out of sorts. And the reason for this is because their electrolyte balance gets all wonky because they're actually uh, urinating out way too much salt. So counterintuitive and contrary to conventional thought as this is, you actually need more salt in your diet when you start to eat a lower carbohydrate diet. Indeed, one of the ways to minimize the discomfort of sugar withdrawal is to add some nice salty broth to your diet as you pull away from the carbohydrates. File that tidbit away to help you through the first week of your sugar withdrawal. All right, let's turn to the process of change because anytime we're looking to make a change to what we eat, our diet, any big, any big habit, well, what can I say? Lots of pushback is going to happen. And, you know, changing your eating habits and stepping away from addiction to sugar, it's going to push strongly on your body's desire to keep a homeostatic balance. We all know from our experience that anytime we start to institute a change in our life, our daily comfortable routine is going to put up a big fuss with it. I've been curious about the change process for decades because basically my job in clinic is to help people with changes that they want to make in their life or maybe they should make in their life. Here are some of the things that I've discovered about the change process. First of all, effort is helpful but it will only take you so far. You can only lean on willpower for a short amount of time. It's helpful in the short term, but it's not helpful in the long term. And the other issue with willpower is once it crumbles, then people usually consider themselves a failure and they quit. Curiosity and inquisitiveness, I have found, are much better long-term strategies for change. Even if you fail, if you're curious about your, and I'm going to use air quotes here, failure, then that failure is simply information. It gives you some ideas on what not to do the next time around. And with the new information, you can often pivot yourself into a new and more helpful solution. I think it's more helpful to be playful than dour. More accepting of your shortcomings and quirks than being judgmental. Plus, opportunities, good luck, and help from unexpected quarters all favor the person that's having fun. I suspect this is because optimists are biased toward finding opportunities. I've also found that goals aren't that helpful. It's way more helpful to build systems rather than having goals. Why? Because systems generate resiliency. Goals tend to be brittle, right? Fail to meet the goal and it's easy to give up. Or worse yet, you meet the goal and then decide to give up. Check out the difference here, okay? For, so for example, let's say your goal is to lose 15 pounds, right? You're kind of stuck with pass-fail here. It, either you lose it or you don't. And if you don't, well, you know, it's another one of those, uh, oh, I, I failed and I'm never going to get this and uh, why should I ever bother again? But if you're using a system, if, the, if, if, you, if you're not looking to lose 15 pounds, but if you're looking instead to dial in a lifestyle that gives you energy and cultivates physical and emotional vitality, well, 
There's an endless opportunity to learn. And you can move in all kinds of different directions that get you toward that goal. Even your failures are of service here. And if your system, if the system that you want to build and put in place is vitality, it's quite likely you're going to lose that weight anyway. I also find that in any process of change, it really helps to have some sort of community support. So whether that's family members, friends, a special group of people, a Facebook page, it doesn't matter. What matters is that you lean on your social connections. Furthermore, when looking to make changes, and this may sound counterintuitive, right? We come from this puritanical culture that says you got to work hard and you got to be kind of strict with yourself. But I find it's more helpful to be kind to yourself. Now, this is not to be conflated with delusionally letting yourself off the hook because you want a day off. But if you're nicer to yourself, you'll tend to stick with the process that you're working with. Furthermore, I think it helps to build in realistic expectations and to build in what I call the fail points. What's a fail point? All right, we're talking sugar here. So for example, let's say uh, you've decided that you're, you're not doing cupcakes. That's it. Cupcakes, they're out. But uh, you know, your granddaughter's having a birthday party and you know there's going to be cupcakes. You build in the fail point. You go, you know what? Yeah, I don't eat cupcakes. Cupcakes, not on the menu. But at my granddaughter's birthday, yeah, I do a cupcake. One cupcake is not going to completely distract you from what you're doing. As long as you know that you've got these little fail points built in. That way you can focus on all the times where you're doing it right instead of beating yourself up for the one or two times that you do it wrong. Furthermore, we rarely measure up to our own ideal and especially we do not measure up to media images. So give that shit up. Serendipity, lucky breaks, the unexpected and grace can all show up all the time if you make room for it. Just don't expect it to arrive on your schedule. I've discovered that slow, sustained change over time beats rapid short-term change. Do not underestimate the power of homeostasis. Unbalance it at your peril. Homeostasis wants to keep things the same. Anytime you go to change things quickly, you're going to be pushing on that. So taking it slow in some ways reduces the resistance that you're going to find as you look to make the changes you want to make. And finally, something really useful if you want to make a change, meditation. Now, yeah, especially if you're a patient of mine, you've probably heard me say this, and I seem to say it time and again, but I think it's really helpful. Now, why is meditation helpful? Because it helps you to realize that 90 plus percent of the thoughts that go through your mind are either worthless, just a lie, or just some kind of junk left over from childhood. Just because a thought is in your head, it doesn't mean you have to believe it. Trying not to think a certain thought is the best way to keep it around. So practice meditation, learn to breathe, and just let stuff go. Yep, it really is simple. It's just not easy. I suggest you do it anyway. And ideally every day, consistency is the key with meditation. Length of time doesn't matter so much, but what does matter is that you do it on a regular basis. My job as a Chinese medicine practitioner is to get to the root of illness and to intervene there. And to that end, 
I've created a little thing called the Journey Beyond Sugar. It's a guided inquiry that helps people to utterly transform their relationship with sugar. I started it as an experiment, as I had no idea if my ideas on change would work or if people would be willing to spend the 10 to 20 minutes a day on the process that it requires. What I found was that many of the people that did the 45-day journey discovered something new about themselves and their relationship with sugar. Some really put it down, others to a lesser degree, some actually not so much at all. But they were now in touch with blocks and emotional demons that keep them in the sugar cycle. People learned a whole lot about themselves, and that self-awareness seemed to help bring about change. Mostly, what I heard from the people that went through the process is that there was a consistent stream of small victories and behavior changes. Now, that is music to my ears, as I suspect that slow and steady change over the course of seasons, that's what actually creates sustainable change. I want to share with you now the essence of what the journey beyond sugar is about. You can take these principles and practices and start transforming your relationship with sugar today. Here's what I found that helps. Now, later on, I'm going to share with you how to get some daily guidance with this process, but let's start with the mindsets and practices that I've found has been helpful for other people. You might even want to grab a, uh, a notebook and uh, something to write with so you can just jot these down. Okay, number one, it's helpful to understand some basics of neuroplasticity. This gives you a glimpse into how our brains are incredibly malleable and they change over time. The key thing to remember about neuroplasticity is it takes some time and you have to wire up new neurocircuits. You can think of this as new behaviors. And then you have to keep firing those neurons that you just wired together. The brain is lazy and it wants to travel the pathways of least resistance. So it's the well-wired pathways that are pathways of least resistance. This is why when beginning to change a habit in the very beginning, it's really rough. But over time, the more you do what it is you want to do, the easier it is to do what it is that you've set out to do. All right, number two, mindfulness. Yeah, this gets into meditation. Um, I think it's really important to develop some sort of practice that allows you to stay present when your thoughts and your feelings want to run away with you. It's best done as a daily practice. It does not have to be done a long time, but consistent daily practice wires in new perspectives and the ability to tolerate difficult emotions. Remember, we're back to that neuroplasticity thing. Get neurons wired together and fire them together. Meditation can help with this. Mindfulness is actually an applied neuroplastic practice from my point of view. Number three, learn some basic biochemistry, specifically the effects of foods on your blood sugar. Learn about how glycemic index and glycemic load can dramatically help you to control the amount of insulin in your bloodstream. By the way, insulin is the fat storing hormone. Number four, learn the various names of sugar. Those food product marketers have some pretty slick ways of not saying sugar when they actually mean sugar. Sugar goes by at least 30 or 40 different euphemisms. Learn what they are 
And so when you read the labels, you'll know what they're actually talking about. And that's number five, read the labels. And I'm not talking about the label on the front that usually has some sort of allusion to a health claim. Read the back and see how much sugar is actually in that, air quotes here, healthy natural product that you're buying. Number six, pay attention to what's in your pantry. And more importantly, only put things in your pantry that you want to eat. Don't even think of bringing problematic foods into your house. You can save a lot of willpower for other more and tempting situations this way. Just don't tempt yourself. Keep that stuff out of the house. Number seven, get a handle on your emotional eating. If you use food to sedate or soothe yourself, and I have some experience with this. In fact, I think a lot of you might have some experience with this. If you've got this issue and you're using food to soothe your emotions, then look it in the eye, get yourself some help, do some journaling, do some therapy, do something. Uh, but get a handle on that. It's, it's going to be so much more helpful when you can trust that when you're hungry, you're actually hungry. Number eight, learn some more basic biochemistry. All right. So you can learn why the number of calories consumed is not nearly as important as the kind of calories they are. Carbohydrates, protein, fat, they all use different metabolic pathways and have different effects on your blood sugar. The old idea of calories in, calories out to determine your weight and your health it just doesn't fit. It's just plain wrong. It's a simplistic model of metabolism that doesn't fit the reality of how each of these macronutrients actually are metabolized differently in your body and have different effects on your blood sugar and energy and fat storage and all this stuff. So yeah, learn that basic biochemistry, why all calories aren't the same. Number nine, Learn the triggers that set off your habitual responses. It frequently is a negative comment to yourself about yourself. Catch these triggers and intervene with something more positive. I know it feels ridiculous at first, and it even feels impossible at first. But that's only because you're in the process of wiring and firing together new neurological pathways. And remember, as we were talking about with the neuroplasticity piece, you have to wire these new connections in your brain and you have to keep doing the habit or you have to keep doing the activity. You have to keep saying, in this case, say positive things to yourself instead of negative things for, to yourself. It takes some time to wire in these, neural path, these new neural pathways. But do it. Remember, your brain is lazy and once something is wired in, it's there to stay. But you can also lay down and strengthen new neurological circuits that in time become the new preferred synaptic pathways that your brain actually wants to use. Need some help in staying the course? I suggest a wonderful little book called The War of Art, written by Stephen Pressfield. It's, an it's this wonderful little book. You can sit down and read it in an afternoon, or you can just pull it open and read a page or two. It's got great things to say about the change process and about resistance and why a lot of the times when you think you're wrong, you're actually right. Okay, number 10, give up the idea that change comes quickly. 
The advertising on the internet has completely ruined our sense of how long things actually take to change. Generally speaking, they're not going to change in days or weeks. It's more like months or seasons. You have to get your expectations straight on this. Contrary to popular belief on the internet, there are no tricks, shortcuts, or hacks. Anyone suggesting that? They're just trying to sell you something. There is, however, daily, consistent, relentless practice. It involves countless failures and infinite moments of restarting over again. This is actually good news, as relentless practice changes your senses and perception over time. Get friendly with your failure, as failure is a constant companion on any journey of discovery or change. Being friendly with your failure is kind of a superpower. I encourage you to cultivate it. Number 11, we often eat foods because we're trying to create a previous experience of love or connection. All right, look, we don't find love in food. We find it in relationship. You might be trying to recreate what you felt in relationship using food, but I'm going to guarantee you that it forever is going to be lacking. If your eating does not include a connective sense of human connection, then you're trying to fill a void that basically is unfillable. Number 12. In our culture, we imagine that willpower is what makes for lasting change. Well, you may have had this experience. It really doesn't. A well-developed sense of curiosity is going to take you much further than willpower, and it's going to be more fun. If you've misplaced your sense of inquisitiveness, I encourage you to go find it. And it will help you to weather many more challenges than willpower will get you through all by itself. In fact, curiousness, inquisitiveness, this is the stuff that's going to sustain you in the moments when willpower has collapsed. And 13, speaking of fun, don't underestimate its importance. We're all drawn to experiences that are fun, and most of us will go out of our way and work really hard at making all kinds of changes in the service of having fun. We are all drawn to experiences that are fun, and we'll often work hard at making all kinds of changes in service of having more fun. So lean on fun instead of dour determination. Your friends will be glad you did, and you'll be glad you did too. Number 14, finally, everyone is different. What works splendidly for one person might be useless for another. Part of the journey and change is not about adopting some formulaic lifestyle, but rather to discover what's helpful for you and all your unique brilliance. One of the basic tenets of Chinese medicine is that one size doesn't fit all. There are patterns, tides, tendencies, and rhythms, but no hard and fast rules. Be attentive to what you find helpful and add in more of that. Be equally attentive to that which does not serve you. This, while it may feel like a failure, again, it's simply information. And in the end, we all find our own way with much more robustness. Spend a little time each day exploring these areas that I've just outlined here. And it can help you to switch up your relationship with sugar in a slow, steady, and utterly transformative way. Or, if you prefer to have some guidance with this process, you can sign up for the 45-day Journey Beyond Sugar Guided Inquiry. In this guided inquiry, you'll get an email a day from me that focuses on these, one of these different 14 points that I just outlined here. 
The process asks for just 10 or 20 minutes a day of your time. So if you don't have that kind of time, please don't do this. But if you've got that kind of time and you like a little bit of help, then you can go to my website, ykclinic.com, and click on Beyond Sugar. And that will get you started. Now, I've got two options with this. One is the uh, 45 days of email. And the other is the 45 days of email along with an option for some one-on-one coaching with me. So again, if you'd like to lean on a human connection and you'd like me to help you with that process, I would be happy to help you with that. All right. One last thing here. Um, I so appreciate you listeners of uh, Everyday Acupuncture Podcast. If you decide you want to do this, I've got a special rate for listeners. So all you've got to do Again, go to ykclinic.com, click on Beyond Sugar, or you can just go to the show notes page here on uh, Everyday Acupuncture. There'll be a link over there as well. And uh, when you go to the checkout cart, use the code EAP97, and you'll be able to get the 45-day guided inquiry for a mere 97 bucks. Yep. You know, if you were to buy a single candy bar, one of those crappy candy bars at the checkout stand of the uh, grocery store. Yeah, if you just gave up one of those a day and spent it on the email, you would be well on your way to getting off of sugar. All right, well, I hope that you found this to be useful and helpful, especially if you're thinking about making some changes around how you're eating or uh, your relationship with sugar. I really thought that I could get everything I needed to get said in 20 minutes, but apparently there was a bit of ranting because it's up to 40 minutes here now. I hope that you've been able to glean some good ideas that you can apply in making some changes in your eating habits. And if you'd like to reach out to me personally, uh, simply go to the show notes page and there's a place where you can click and send me an email. If you've got questions, comments, I'd love to hear them. All right, that's it for now. Look forward to being with you again in the next episode. you have enjoyed this episode of everyday acupuncture podcast if so please take a moment and visit www.everydayacupuncturepodcast.com where you can click on the review on itunes button to rate and review the show doing this helps other people to find the show also you can express your appreciation by supporting the show with a donation thanks for listening and be sure to tune in again next time